developing your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 78 of Waking Up to Narcissism. I am your host, Tony Overbay. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist and host of the Virtual Couch Podcast, as well as Murder on the Couch. And we'll just, we'll get right to the content today, but if you will take a peek at the show notes, you'll see a Linktree link. I think it's link.tree or linktree.com slash virtual couch. And there you can find uh, marriage courses and parenting things and latest podcasts and all those sort of things. So check that out. And I still would love if you want to have questions and answers, learn everything you want to know about narcissism and emotional immaturity, you can subscribe to my premium Waking Up to Narcissism question and answer podcast. So that is up there as well. So let's start with another poem today. And this is from a listener. And she said, hello, I've been finding your podcast episodes incredibly helpful. I feel lucky to have come across them and wanted to thank you for what you do. I wrote a poem about my relationship. I felt inspired from your readings of the writings that listeners have shared with you. I had to share it somewhere and I thought this could be the place. Thank you. Here's the poem. I believe in him because I love him. I want him to succeed, even though believing makes me bleed and bleed and bleed. I do the heavy lifting. I pull more than my weight, even when the ground gets icy and I don't know how to skate. It feels like I'm a beggar for crumbs that he can spare, desperate for a pinch of his tender loving care. To matter as much as he does to himself and not feel like a toy collecting dust on the shelf. In the beginning, I felt known. I felt loved and seen, lost and love bombing like a perfumed dream. Now it's me and the rubble of who I used to be, struggling to decipher what's him and what's me. I believe in him because I love him. I want him to succeed, even though believing makes me bleed and bleed and bleed. He says he wants to change. His worry seems sincere. To leave him in the cold now fills my heart with fear. What if I could break the odds? What if I take that chance? Can I outlast the devil in his wicked dance? Should I keep moving my feet to this old dance I've known for the slightest chance that something good has grown? Or should I cut and run with crumbs in an empty bowl, still loving and needing him, but needing more to feel whole? So thank you for sharing that. And I would just encourage anybody that also has tried their hand at poetry or anything. I think I did. I read a haiku at one point, or if there's a narrative, a, a story, but feel free to share because I feel like the more that people are sharing about their experience, the more that people are starting to realize that they are not alone and that these relationships, these things are maybe a little bit more common than people would like to think. And that means that we're starting to get more traction and people are starting to get the tools that they need for help. So today I want to talk about a concept that one of the people that I admire the most in the Private Women's Facebook group brought up, and she shared an article, and this is called Intermittent Reinforcement, and the article, and I'll link to this as well in the show notes, but the article comes from a site called Feeling is Healing, Embrace Your Feelings, Embrace Your Dreams, and it is a site based out of the, the UK, so it's feelingishealing.co.uk, and it's just simply titled Intermittent Reinforcement. 
So before we turn to the article, let me just set the table on this concept of intermittent reinforcement. So if you look at narcissistic or emotionally immature relationships, they are often addictive in nature. They feel addictive to somebody that is caught in this trauma bond. And this concept of intermittent reinforcement will explain why. And I got permission from this person, but I was trading texts with someone last week, and they are finally trying to really wrap their heads around what this trauma bond is. And they have been in a horribly emotionally abusive and at times physically abusive relationship, but they shared with me in a text that they said they're just struggling not to talk to this person so much. They just said they miss this person. They said that they were tagged in some photos online recently and just seeing this person really triggered my client. And they just said, not knowing anything is just so difficult. They just want to know. They want answers. And as we'll talk about today, they really just want that that dopamine, that dopamine bump. They want certainty. And so what intermittent reinforcement, where that comes from, it originates from B.F. Skinner's theories on operant conditioning and behaviorism. So let me try and just make a little bit more sense of those two concepts because this is a very important thing to uh, to set the table for why we get to this intermittent reinforcement, which is such a major factor of the trauma bond. So what is operant conditioning? It's a learning process in which behavior is shaped and it's maintained by consequences. So by the consequences that follow a behavior. So in other words, an individual's behavior can be modified based on the rewards or the punishments that they experience as a, as a result of the behavior. So here's a pretty simple example. So suppose a teacher wants to encourage her students to turn in their homework on time. So she decides to implement a sticker reward system. You get a gold star where students who consistently hand in their homework on time receive this gold star sticker. So in this scenario, the students quickly learn that the desired behavior, which is turning in the behavior on time, tur- turning in the homework on time, is followed by a positive consequence of getting a gold star. So as a result, they are more likely to repeat the behavior in the future to receive the gold star. And this is, uh, this is just a, a simple example of operant conditioning and practice. So then there's behaviorism. So behaviorism is also proposed by B.F. Skinner. It's a theory of learning that then focuses solely on observable behaviors. So this is not taking into account any independent activities, things that are going on in the mind, cognitions, thoughts. So this theory, so again, behaviorism, which right in the name, it's behaviors, suggests that all behaviors are either conditioned, which would mean learned, or unconditioned, which would mean that they are just innate. They're just the way what we do. And it emphasizes the role of reinforcement, punishment, and then your environment in shaping your behavior. So again, we've got this, we've got these two concepts. We've got operant conditioning, and then we've got behaviorism. Well, let me give you an example then of behaviorism. I mean, I think you could probably come up with one on your own, but uh, think about a kid that is learning to clean their room. Every time that they clean their room, their parents praise them and then give them a reward, maybe some extra playtime. So according to Skinner's behaviorism, the child then starts associating cleaning their room with the positive reinforcement of praise and extra playtime. And Skinner isn't talking about this, but if you start talking about the relational frame theory, then they all have in the same frame the concept of cleaning their room and reward. So then those those start to be associated together. And this is just my my theory, unsupported, unscientific, is that then if we really go back to looking at the brain as a don't get killed device, that your brain is working off of this this flawed premise that it has a finite amount of electrical activity, which is why we want to habitualize so many things from behaviors to even thought processes 
then the sooner that you can cram something into a relational frame, good or bad, your brain is going to do it because it will require less electrical activity when it's coming from this habit center of your brain, that, that basal ganglia, the little walnut-sized part of the brain that is where things go when you just get them down, when you habitualize these behaviors, and then you use less uh, brain power, less electrical activity. Again, working off the flawed premise that you're going to run out of electrical activity in the brain and die. So the brain is, is for as wonderful and intelligent it is, sometimes it's not very bright either. So if we go back to this example, so then that, that praise, the extra playing time, that positive reinforcement, then the kid is more likely to repeat that behavior in the future. So their behavior of cleaning the room is shaped by the consequence of their action. So this, uh, this external stimulus of a reward. So take those two solid concepts. And I don't know if you ever saw the movie The Fly. Uh, the only one I ever saw was the one with Jeff Goldblum back in the day. I don't even know what year that would have been, probably a long time ago. But if I remember correctly, he's trying to, to transport himself from one pod to the next. But then a fly gets in with him. So when he, when he teleports or transports to the other pod, now all of a sudden he has fly DNA in him. And he can see really well and he can stick the walls and he vomits on his food and, and those sort of things. And okay, so actually as I talk it through, maybe, uh, maybe it's not the best example. Well, okay, hang on. So I'm back on my train of thought. You're going to transport or teleport B.F. Skinner's concepts of operant conditioning and behaviorism to this other pod. And if you are, are I don't know, listening from beyond the grave, B.F. Skinner, I bet you have never seen your work described in this way, but I digress. So if you then tell a narcissist that there is, I don't know, a mirror in the pod as well as maybe a microphone and there's a crowd of people who want to hear them tell their high school baseball stories, then they may go into that pod. And so now they're in that pod with these concepts of behaviorism and operant conditioning. And so then when the teleportation happens, now you have these solid psychological principles interwoven in with narcissism. And uh, for the record, there wasn't actually a mirror or a microphone. So this new creature is not going to kind of ref reflect light or have a voice that projects similar to the Mr. Microphone of my youth. But you, you put them through these filters of emotional immaturity and narcissism. And I feel like you really do get intermittent reinforcement. So this is a powerful motivator. It's a manipulation tactic. So to illustrate the concept, Skinner then conducted studies with rats. So initially, the rats were rewarded with food every time that they pressed the lever. So this was this continuous reinforcement. But over time, then the researchers changed the experiment. So they rewarded the rats with food in a very unpredictable pattern. Sometimes pressing the lever would result in a reward, and other times it would not. Sometimes they would press the lever and it would be even more food, and other times it would be nothing. So this random pattern, one might expect, sorry, I feel like in my teaching class, what would you expect? But they were expecting that the rats would then give up pressing the lever, but the opposite occurred. So the rats continued to press the lever obsessively, and they even neglected their own hygiene and their other needs. So now I'm going to jump full into this article of intermittent reinforcement from this feeling is healing to act as the muse. But so this mirrors, and they don't have an author listed of this article, but it really is. It's brilliant. But this mirrors what happens in an abusive relationship. And it goes toward explaining why such a relationship is harder to leave than healthy relationships. Because we almost become addicted to trying to get the narcissist or the emotionally immature person to behave in a safe and sane way. So we're going back and pressing that lever like crazy, hoping to get the reward. And this phenomenon also explains why it can take longer to get over an abusive relationship once that relationship is ended. 
because the relationship is by nature, not a relationship, but an addiction, which is, is so fitting as a person myself who has worked with a lot of people that are trying to overcome addictive behaviors or, or turning to unhealthy coping mechanisms that, that, that pull of the addiction, one of the, the biggest um, components, I, so I work a lot with people who turn to pornography as an unhealthy coping mechanism because there isn't by definition or by diagnosis code, a pornography addiction. You can start looking at impulse control disorder or compulsive sexual behavior, but I like to look at it as turning to an unhealthy coping mechanism. And often the biggest triggers are boredom or I call it crimes of opportunity, but that boredom one or that loneliness. And we've talked about Ross Rosenberg's concepts around pathological loneliness on the podcast many times. So when people are lonely, pathologically lonely, then they often turn to that narcissistic lover of choice to try to get that dopamine reward. They go hit that lever hoping this time it's going to dump a ton of rat food in their bowl. So intermittent reinforcement is the most powerful motivator and manipulation tactic. In an abusive relationship, the uh, the abuser will mix episodes of love in with the abuse. And at this point, the victim, this is why I say it's so important to raise your emotional baseline, that, that self-care is not selfish, because the victim becomes so worn down and starved of affection that when they finally do receive this little little scrap of love, then it can feel just heavenly. It can feel euphoric. It can give you, it's like that rush, that that dopamine dump, it's like the high. So that feeling is literally created by the release of dopamine. So then over time, the victim associates the abuser with the feeling of relief from their pain. So even though the abuser caused the pain in the first place, so we desperately hang on to this hope of the narcissist promise that they are reformed, that they get it now, because that does, that alleviates our discomfort and they actually get the validation, the emotionally immature does. And then we might even get that little hit of dopamine. And now we're associating them, the person that does the very abuse with actually the, the healing as well. And this causes the trauma bond. And so it is a very strong sense of bonding with the abuser. And this, this happens because of the abuse rather than in spite of it. So by leaving such a relationship, the physical body actually has to go through withdrawal, just as a drug addict does when they come off of drugs. So hopefully by understanding what's going on with this intermittent reinforcement, then it can help you make sense of the feelings that you're feeling. And I think that one of the most important things is as somebody who works with people who are trying to overcome addictive behaviors, that I think there's a lot of bad data out there as well, because we have to accept the fact that we want to turn to that drug of choice. There isn't any, we, we don't beat ourselves up. We don't say what's wrong with me. And we don't tell ourselves, don't think about it because for the nine millionth time, we'll go through this, uh, this exercise that I love. Don't think about a, I don't know, a yellow tricycle. Don't think about a fish on top of the yellow tricycle. I'll give you a little bit of uh, latitude there. If he's laying on, flopping around on the seat, or if he actually has feet and he's driving, actually have him have feet and his arms are on the, the handlebars of the tricycle and he's wearing a, I don't know, a red, white, and blue hat. And there are streamers coming around from the handlebars. Don't think about it of the tricycle and they are just flowing in the wind. So whatever you do, do not think about those things. Just as you can tell yourself, don't think about the narcissist or the emotionally immature. I have to accept the fact that I am thinking about that. I have to accept the fact that I am a human being who has thoughts, feelings, and emotions. And so check that out. That's what I'm thinking about. That's interesting. And now I have to invite those feelings to come along with me while I take action on things that matter, while I do. And if your brain says, do what? Anything. Anything to begin with. But if you can find things that actually matter to you, that are of value, then you're going to be more engaged in doing those things. 
But if you sit there and think and beat yourself up and ruminate and worry and try to solve and figure out and look for certainty, then that's only going to cause this feeling to feel worse. And then what do you want to do? You want to get that dopamine dump, that hit from the narcissist. So then the article, the author goes back to saying intermittent reinforcement is a serious threat to your health and well-being. Because as you saw in the Skinner example, it led to the rats completely neglecting their own self-care. So these patterns will leave you feeling confused, unable to make sense of anything because the behavior does not make sense. This is where we talk about trying to make sense of the nonsense. It's illogical. And intermittent reinforcement also explains why no contact becomes very important when it is possible to do so. But when it is not, it's as if the, the heroin addict has to go to the methadone clinic to, to have the, the come down or a step down drug. For the narcissist, the relationship is never really over from their perspective because they're going to keep coming back to you as long as they need their drug, the narcissistic supply. And I love that they give this example. A behavior like checking emails is another example of intermittent reinforcement or checking your phone because we're rewarded with an email at inconsistent and unpredictable intervals. So the occasion when we receive the reward, then that'll make up for the times we check the email and there's no reward. Or we pick up our phone and the, there isn't a notification or anything that we need to do. They say there's a lot of other examples of intermittent reinforcement, such as gambling, slot machines. It also explains why if you give into a nagging child one time, then the child will continue to nag and push your boundaries. Because they're going to learn that after a certain amount of time, that they will get what they want. So how do you know when you are being subjected to intermittent reinforcement? They have a list in the article, you experience feelings of confusion. What is going on? You find yourself obsessing over what the other person meant, what was intended, what the other person's thinking. Uh, you find yourself trying to work out what you could have done to make the situation turn out differently. Again, my fifth rule of interacting with a, a narcissist or emotionally immature person is there's nothing that you will ever do to cause them to have the aha moment or the epiphany. It has to come from them. Or you blame yourself. You feel like you have to take responsibility for what went wrong in the relationship and for your partner's actions. And, and I maintain that this is, I would love for us all to take a look at, what do you do with your discomfort? If you feel uncomfortable or you feel bad, what do you do with that? It's okay to sit with it. It's okay to talk to a trusted person about it. It's really good to journal or write it down or even record it into a microphone or onto your phone. You can delete it. That's fine. But it's what you do with that discomfort. Because if you want to get rid of the discomfort, oftentimes what people do is take, take the blame. Okay, it's my bad. That makes me feel a little bit better. Or they hand that power over to somebody else. This is why I have a, a bit of a problem at times with things like the concepts around confession, because I, I can appreciate it if somebody is looking for accountability in order to help them grow. But if somebody just feels like, okay, I need to confess this to whether it's a spouse, uh, whether it's a friend, whether it's a priest, whether it's a bishop, a rabbi, you name it, and they say, forgive me, I have sinned. And then that alleviates their discomfort. And then if the person says, I forgive you, who, okay, I'm good. But then the person at times, the people I often work with, then they just go and do. And uh, their thought is, I'm, I feel good. I don't need to work on myself anymore. I feel really good. I've been forgiven. But when those waters are calm, that's the time to start to learn how to deal with uh, your emotions, how to look for things that matter to you. Because if you just hand that power over to somebody else and they tell you, you are good, yeah, it feels better in the moment, but are you doing anything to grow or are you just alleviating that discomfort? And heaven forbid that person says, oh man, you are bad. Because now I just handed that power over to somebody who said, hey, you're a piece of garbage and I want you to go think about it, which never leads to positive outcomes, in my opinion. 
So that was coming off of you blaming yourself. The other ways to know when you're being subjected to intermittent reinforcement, you feel distressed and you feel in pain. You end up second guessing yourself. You rationalize and you talk yourself out of your gut instincts. You find yourself going back to the scene of the abuse, the scene of the crime. I want to tell a quick story. I wasn't sure where I was going to share this or if I was going to share this, but talking about trusting your gut instincts, this is going to be full of uh, healthy ego, egotistical talk, and then I'm the floor will be open for criticism. Bring it on. I will take it. I, I want to... I, I want to grow. I want to be better. I will self-confront. But let me talk you through a story, take you on a train of thought. Friday night, I was uh, asked to go speak to a group of youth. And there's some fun ADD concepts here as well. My associate, uh, intern, coworker, Nate Christensen, who's been on the podcast, was going to go with me. He was uh, We were joking he was going to be the opening act. It was about 100 or so youth, maybe more. And we were going to talk about mental health. And I assumed it was going to be at a big, large uh, church building in the area. And instead, we got the directions, and it was about an hour and 45 minutes outside of town, out in the middle of the woods, no cell service, had to use bug spray, all of it. So we head out there, and we have an amazing talk on the way. We're talking about all kinds of things, mental health and cases and podcast ideas, and just really enjoying the conversation. And we get there, and I think Nate does a phenomenal job. He really does. There's, there was a stage. He did have a microphone, and there was a bonfire, and the smoke just blew right into the stage the entire time. And like a trooper, he stood there in the face of the smoke and just talked through, gave hilarious examples. I think the kids loved him. One of the things I thought was really funny was when they were asking how they announced Nate, I said, just announced that you may have seen him in his Netflix special. And I was offering the kid five bucks to make that intro. He did it for free. But then Nate got up and said, I, I don't have a Netflix special. But I love this concept called anchoring, where I guarantee there were people that left there looking for Nate Christensen and his Netflix special on the internet. But then Nate introduced me and I got up there and I just had such a fun time and just talked about mental health. We, we left and it was, uh, we were driving back home. Now we've got this, it's about a four mile, really windy road to get out to a 12 mile kind of windy road to get to a 40 mile, um, just loosely winding freeway or interstate, or I don't know the back road kind of vibe back into, into a main town. So as we leave the camp right away, there's something out of my peripheral to the right and I think it's a deer running out to the car. And so I put the brakes on a little bit. I notice it's a ginormous uh, German shepherd at this point now. I've confabulated this fishtail that he was as big as our car. But I, I see him always a dog. And I just, I give the car a little bit of gas, pull up a little bit. We start chuckling. And then I look and it's, it's like a scene from Jurassic Park and the T-Rex is coming in and objects in the mirror are closer than they appear. So I gun it. I get out of there. But then here's where um, my true confessions. So I, I might as well have grabbed the ponytail, strapped it on, you know, asked if I could put a yoga mat on my driver's seat. And I just said to Nate, hey, this is, this is what's really interesting is that the, I've been doing mindfulness exercises for a very long time, years now, and I've had a series of things that have happened. I believe I shared a couple of them on, on a recent podcast where I got pulled over from, by the cops because my, I didn't want my yogurt to melt. I didn't realize there was a DUI stop. I thought it was just some road work. So I, I flipped a U-turn where I wasn't supposed to. And a cop came and he was wonderful and kind. And I said, I took ownership and accountability of the what I did. And if I needed to pay a ticket, then no problem. But let's get home and let's eat this yogurt. And, and I didn't get rattled. I noticed all of my thoughts and feelings and it was wonderful. And I almost missed a connecting flight due to a flight delay on a speaking gig in Salt Lake. And there too, it was really interesting because people were losing their minds on the airplane. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. You know, what happens happens and I'm here and I'm being and doing. So I'm telling Nate this and I'm telling him that as this dog ran out, I thought, oh, that's interesting. The dog ran out. 
But right as if I just cue the cue from the universe, from heaven, there's a car pulled over to my left. And there's a woman that is flagging me down, waving her hands wildly. And we slow down and all of a sudden, I just, you know, the, the spidey sense kicks in. And I notice she looks a bit disheveled. And she asked if I have some water. And I said, I do. Do you need it for your car or for you? And she said, oh, both. And so, and I realize now, taking this in, you know, the, the hood was not up for the universal sign of, hey, I'm broken down. There wasn't steaming coming from the car. She looked disheveled and bless her heart. I know she's probably been through a lot in her life, but she had some track marks on her arm from, you could tell maybe from some drug use. But I just felt, I felt off. I felt scared. I felt nervous. And so I just said, she said, can you get out of the car? And I, I just said, hey, let me, we, we, and I know I don't know much about cars anyway. I thought about, do we drive this person into the next town? But I just said, hey, let me just have somebody come get you. Let me send for some help. And she got a little bit angry and started yelling and said, whatever you, don't send the cops. And then we pulled away. But it really, after I just talked about being so mindful, then I realized, oh, I was freaking out. That really scared me. And so there goes all of my mindfulness training. But then I also thought though, no, it was me trusting my gut. And what I think is ironic is I people can make the observation and judgment, the the concept out of Marshall Rosenberg's nonviolent communication and say that they just observed that I left some uh, Christian camp and this was literally the parable of the Good Samaritan and I just walked on by. And I will take that criticism because I often say to the people that have been in emotionally immature or abusive or narcissistic relationships or if they grew up in that way in their home as a kid, that oftentimes they don't trust their gut. And so I would rather lead with that trusting of my gut. And we talk again about this intermittent reinforcement, if that was the way that your relationship pattern maybe was from your uh, childhood, or maybe it's from your emotionally mature narcissistic relationship, you end up second guessing yourself, you rationalize and you talk yourself out of your gut instincts. So I feel good about the fact that we left. I really do. But then if everything is an opportunity to sit with that discomfort and to self-confront because I want to be a better human being. I want to be a better person in general, not so that other people will say well done or good job, but because that's what I feel like this uh, human or mortal existence is about is becoming and being and doing better or accepting, accepting who I am. And then so that then I can move forward and hopefully let my light so shine that I can lift others around me and those, uh, all those things. But the thing that I did not do was I did not stop at the next town and send somebody to help. And I process this with a couple of clients who were talking about trusting your gut. And it's funny, I deal with so many emotionally or pathologically kind people that they were saying, well, right, but you, you knew, you knew that she really didn't need help. And I said, I appreciate that. But for me and, and my journey of, of awakening, of enlightenment, of trying to get that ponytail and that yoga mat is if I say to somebody that I'm going to send somebody back, even if they're saying don't send the cops, if they truly are broken down, then I should have sent somebody back. So I, I would imagine that person eventually got help because there were other people that were leaving the camp later that night, some other leaders. And then the next day, there were a lot of people leaving. But so I hope that person found their way. But back to that, rationalize or talk yourself out of things or trust your gut instincts, because that can be one of the, the consequences of growing up with uh, intermittent reinforcement, because you really will question yourself and your gut. So back to the article, will a partner who's treating me in this way ever change? They say that a person who has a personality disorder such as narcissistic or antisocial personality disorder is aware that they are is aware that they're manipulating their partners in this way and they're unlikely to ever change as this behavior rewards them. And I do find that that's interesting when they say that they are aware that they're manipulating their partners in this way. And this is where I do really 
question that from the work that I've done over a very long period of time. And we look at the concepts of implicit memory or what it feels like to be them or what it feels like to be you or what it feels like to be me that are all based on the gradual residue of lived experience. So if the narcissist or the emotionally immature person has just been being them and doing them and just reacting and thinking and being manipulative and not taking ownership, that gaslighting comes as a childhood defense mechanism. The concepts around confabulation, they're creating a new narrative in real time because it can't be that they're a bad person or that they did anything wrong or that they're, they didn't take ownership of things. It has to be someone else's fault or you don't understand. Whatever, with Whichever one that you ascribe to or buy into, whether they are aware or that it's just part of that implicit memory or they're just being them, the key point here is that talking about that that person with the personality disorder, that they're unlikely to change as this behavior rewards them because that behavior puts them in the one-up position. That behavior gets them their, their narcissistic supply. It gets rid of their discomfort. The author says there are other non-personality disordered people who have insecure attachments. So I love that. For example, someone with an avoidant attachment style may pull away due to an underlying fear of intimacy. This type of person would need to be willing to work with their partner to form more consistent patterns. They would need to process the underlying feelings and beliefs that come up when they feel like pulling away. So how do you take back your power? Realize that the person, uh, that if the person is carrying out this behavior on purpose, that they aren't going to be any different and the relationship will be this way for as long as it lasts. So then I would add then my two cents in there that then whether it is on purpose or whether it is what they do, that there isn't going to be any different behavior and the relationship will continue the way it lasts. If you continue to just acquiesce and go along with this intermittent uh, reinforcement. If you're on the receiving end of intermittent reinforcement, it's important to set clear boundaries, but then to stick to them and know again that a boundary is a challenge to the narcissist. The more consistent and firm that you are with your boundaries, the less power that that person will have to manipulate you. And after stating those boundaries, you stick to them. Don't keep repeating them. Don't rub the line in the sand back up on your boundary. Try to, try to explain, even if the other person isn't listening, I'm expressing and holding my boundary. Honor your feelings as they come up. If something doesn't feel right, pay attention. I love that they say in this article, the body doesn't lie. We know Bessel van der Kolk says the body keeps the score. Our instincts are built on a lifetime of awareness from these, the vault of our implicit memory, our subconscious, or what it feels like to be us. And this is so much more powerful than what they say our limited logical and rational minds could ever fathom. So intermittent reinforcement can only work if the person is offering or withholding something that you want or need. This is where it is, it is time for your personal journey of, of worthiness, that you are of worth, you are enough. And if you can step into that calm, confident energy, that healthy ego based off of the things that you like to do and be and feel and say, then you will not need that intermittent reinforcement. As a matter of fact, it will be something you detest, that you abhor. Realizing that you have a sense of security then becomes the only way to really have a relationship with somebody. And I love how they say, do not settle for anything less. So I want to throw a couple of ideas out. I would like to create a little bit of content or a good old intellectual property around the concepts of intermittent reinforcement. So I've come up with the acronym RIDE. Reinforcement intermittently delivers emotion. RIDE. Because I feel like this term, it captures the ups and downs that are experienced by the victim in a relationship with a narcissist or an emotionally immature person. It is an emotional roller coaster. It's an emotional roller coaster ride. So that I feel like that lends itself to this acronym of RIDE. So reinforcement intermittently delivers emotion. Thought of an example. I should have put it in form of a haiku. 
But consider the, the case of a, of a Mark and a Lisa. Mark never knows what he's going to get when he walks in the door after work. Some days, Lisa greets him with a smile, a warm dinner, affectionate conversation, a hug and a kiss. Those are the days that Mark lives for. But without warning, the dynamic shifts. Sometimes he's met with cold indifference or harsh criticism, complete silence or withdrawal. And that, it's, it's a wild ride. It's an emotional roller coaster. Again, reinforcement intermittently delivers emotion. So in this scenario, the reinforcement is Lisa's positive attention, her affection. However, it is delivered intermittently. So on the days when Mark is greeted warmly, he experiences a surge of positive emotion, a dopamine dump. But those highs, they're unpredictable. because And so those keep him emotionally invested in the relationship and constantly seeking that affection, despite this distressing, the distressing lows that he feels when she is withholds that that attention or that affection or even just conversation. And those fluctuating emotions that he's experiencing, those are like the ups and downs of a roller coaster ride. So hence the term, the emotional roller coaster or ride. That reinforcement intermittently delivers emotion. I had a letter that came in that uh, that really got me thinking about this. And then there was this, again, this article was posted in the Facebook group so speaking of ride, I think that uh, we're at the end of today's ride. So I want to thank you all for taking the time to join me on Waking Up to Narcissism. And if I can just point you, and I may post this as a bonus episode here on the Waking Up to Narcissism, but I would highly encourage you to go over to the virtual couch. And I shared a, just a, it's probably one of the most powerful episodes that I feel like I've done. It was an interview with Duff and Kira Dyer, and it was about about finding their daughter, Emma, unfortunately unresponsive and she she passed away but the the story that they tell uh, that that podcast I think I've received more feedback from that one than anything I think I have in the last seven years so I just really feel like that would be something I would highly recommend and I'll put a link directly to that in the show notes today but I would highly encourage you to go check that out and uh, again I appreciate the support please send your questions, uh, your comments. I do. I read them all. So many times uh, I don't get a chance to respond, but my uh, my wonderful assistant Naomi does get back to people. If you're looking to get in a woman's group or men's group, let me know. I want your poetry. I want your haikus. I want your stories. I want your examples because I do see you and I know that this is a journey and I appreciate where you're at. And I will see you next week on Waking Up the Narcissist. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.